Welcome to Discourse. This is a podcast that looks at the story behind influential people. We delve into the formative experiences that built careers, ignite the spark behind great ideas, and influence the people who leave a mark upon society. I'm your host, Zaid Sayed, and this is Discourse. My first guest is Jeremy Rossman, the founder of The Make School, a college alternative for programmers and founders. He's joining this show from Palo Alto. Hey, there's a, I'm actually in San Francisco right now at our headquarters um, in Sonoma. Right, and I must have been mistaken. Uh, so anyway, this summer, uh, you've expanded your summer program to various cities in Asia. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. And as part of your uh, summer tour, if I may, you gave a talk at my high school, after which I started hounding you to be on this podcast. And to my surprise, you graciously accepted my invitation. <laughs> And I'm thrilled you could be here. Thanks for being on the show, Jeremy. It wasn't that dramatic. You asked very nicely, so I'm very happy to be here. So let's talk a bit about Make School, specifically how it came to be. Now, you left MIT to go and start Make School, and I'm curious what exactly was going through your mind during this momentous decision. So I wish I could tell you a story about how when I dropped out of MIT, I, I had a vision. Five years out, I knew how things would go, I had a plan. Um, but the reality is um, it happened a lot more gradually. In 2009, I arrived at MIT as a first year student and I left in 2011 after having completed two full years. I had initially wanted to be a computer science student and I found that the computer science curriculum at MIT um, had not really been updated in years and though was quite strong in its uh, mathematical foundations and theoretical foundations, right. uh, was not really up to date when it came to providing students opportunities to learn the technologies and tools that were being used by industry and understand the main application of programming in this century, which is building products that solve real problems. And so that frustration is ultimately what led me to seek out other opportunities to learn. That frustration is what led me to switch out of the computer science major, though I continued coding on the side, and I switched into a media studies major, uh, which is rather unusual for MIT, and I made a game with some friends. And that game ended up being featured by Apple in the App Store, and I realized I was more excited to work on my product than I was to go to class. <laughs> and so the original decision to leave MIT was was a pretty modest one. Instead of dropping out, what I did was I just took a semester off. I had arranged such that I could return, and I teamed up with a friend of mine from high school, and together we worked on a game. And as luck would have it, um, we went to high school in the Silicon Valley, and we received uh, some initial investment from a startup incubator and accelerator called Y Combinator, uh, based in Mountain View. Mm -hmm. So in January 2012, we moved back to the Silicon Valley, to our hometowns, to um, participate in this program. And while we were developing our own games, four hours a week, we started teaching game development at our old high school. N now, knowing what you know now about the company that I run, 
Um, and I don't know that your listeners know the full story yet, yeah. but you can imagine that those four hours a week of teaching on the side turned out to be very pivotal to our trajectory. A semester off from MIT to work on a game turned into the uh, beginnings of an education company mm-hmm. that today have educated um, you know, millions of students online and over a thousand students in person across the globe. So really, the moment that that I had a clear vision that I was actually running an education company with my co-founder, that we understood the future in front of us, came after we dropped out. Right. When we decided instead of returning to school, we were going to stay in Silicon Valley. We were going to continue working on our company. We were going to raise additional investment, which we did in April of 2012. So, um, you know more than six months after after leaving school and ultimately did not return and so what what started as a semester off became dropping out and what started as a game company became an education company by 2013 we had shut down all of our in-house game development we were still helping some of our students build their games and in 2014 we expanded our offerings beyond just game development to other areas of software development and also started offering this two-year program Mm-hmm. that you mentioned in 2015. The company actually was originally called Make Games With Us in 2012, and it was only in 2014 that we changed the name from Make Games With Us to Make School. So when you look in retrospect, you know, Jeremy Rossman, founder of Make School since 2012, but when you look at it from the 2012 perspective, you realize that there was a few twists and turns along the way before it took its final form. Now, you mentioned that you weren't satisfied with the practical offerings of the computer science program at MIT, that you felt it was outdated. So what particularly does MakeSchool do to solve that problem? So there's a number of things that I feel uh, we do better and are, and are working really hard to do better. Um, being outdated is not the only aspect of that education that I felt um, was, uh, was, was a challenge uh, in terms of providing good value to students. Um, so there's, there's of course, the aspect that, that we discussed, curriculum being up to date and being practical and applicable. There's also the fact that the leading model for higher education in the United States that has been copied around the world, um, though, of course, it originates from outside the United States, the leading model is that of the research university. And this is, you know, the most prestigious institutions, the, the Harvards, the MITs, the Stanfords, um, they are research universities, and that means um, there's a lot of people whose jobs it is to, to make sure that the university is producing really cutting-edge research, is competitive in getting the best grants and hiring the best professors. But what that also means is that, for example, there's no one whose job it really is to feel deep pain if there is a single bad lecture. And it sounds silly, but we've grown accustomed to the fact that in our educational experience, we will have bad teachers. This is just a fact of life. It seems normal. Like, of course, sometimes you have a bad teacher. This is maybe understandable at a primary and secondary schooling level, especially in the public schooling system, with so many students in such large schools being provided to the general public for free or at low cost. It's understandable that once in a while, you would have a bad teacher. 
But in the United States, universities cost anywhere from 30 to 50,000 US dollars per year. I mean, you know, upwards of 300,000 Hong Kong dollars uh, sometimes, right? Per year. And there is no product in the world that you would be willing to spend that much money on and accept to be so defective. If one of the four seats in your car is not usable, you will return your car to the car dealership. But if one of the four classes you are taking has a terrible professor, that's just normal. And to me, that's unacceptable. So the combination of this problem where the university's focus is on research and not on the undergraduate uh, student experience, combined with the fact that the curriculum specifically for computer science is out of date, really led me and inspired my co-founder and I to to start this two-year program that is now one of the uh, main offerings of Make School. So that was the background, but I didn't answer your question, which is how do we solve that problem? Um, the uh, the first part is is to the relevance and 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 how current our curriculum is. The tools and technologies that we are teaching are so cutting edge that they are typically in need of updating, both in terms of curriculum and in terms of what we are actually teaching every couple of months. In 2012, when we started teaching, we started teaching iPhone application development for games. Now we teach iPhone application development for games and for apps, and that's the programs we run across um, the world over the summer. That program alone, just a simple eight-week class, um, and even the shorter versions that we offer that are four weeks long, require updating every couple of months because we're teaching the real tools that real developers use every day to build iPhone applications. The same stuff that even Apple engineers are using to build apps on the iPhone. And Apple is updating that technology all the time. And so if we don't change our content, content that is two months old literally will not work. It's, it's as if the rules of grammar of the English language get updated by some central authority every two months and your grammar books all of a sudden become out of date and you need to update them. It's kind of like that. And it's shocking to me that a university like MIT is updating their computer science curriculum this year for the first time in 10 years, whereas we do it every couple of months. The other way that we stay relevant is that we have very, very close ties to industry. Walking distance from my office are Uber, uh, Square, Twitter, in fact, I often go grab lunch in Twitter's building. It's so close. We, we, we do meetings at Twitter sometimes because they have a really nice um, uh, market and, and food court in there on their first floor. So, you know, we're surrounded by tech companies a few minutes more away. We have Airbnb, we have Lyft, um, and we have a number of corporate partners, both official and, and informal, um, that allow us to really have direct connections to engineers and heads of engineering to talk to them about what they're doing at their companies, what they look for when they hire students. And the crazy thing is that research universities in the United States see their lack of connection to industry sometimes almost like a feature, like, 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 like a positive. Um, some of the public universities in the United States, like the one that my co-founder went to at UCLA, are not allowed to introduce course materials that are seen as too vocational. Because, because they must be teaching students only foundations and theory and preparing them for a life of research. And of course they know that a lot of their students won't go into research, but they still aren't allowed to introduce classes that are tied to specific technologies 
that have specific uses in industry because it's too specific. And and that means that when we it sounds so easy, like, oh, just go talk to the companies and ask them what they want you to teach. But a university like Harvard would never have the modesty to go and ask companies what to teach because they are very, very confident that the authors of curriculum and the deciders of what to teach should be those with doctorate degrees and PhDs who have been studying this for their whole lives. And we think it's quite the opposite. For software engineering and computer science, the more time you've spent in research, the more time you've spent away from industry, the less relevant your knowledge is. And so we don't hire people who are, you know, I mean, of course, sometimes there's exceptions, right? You run into a professor somewhere who's really, really current on his knowledge or her knowledge because um, they've been working really hard and staying up to date. But by and large, with only a couple of exceptions, make school instructors are all engineers who are the thing that they were doing right before teaching at make school is that they were writing code for a company. And that is very, very powerful. So the combination of factors I mentioned, updating our curriculum regularly, turning to industry with great modesty and asking them what we should be teaching to understand what they look for when they hire people and hiring instructors that come from engineering backgrounds who were just recently software engineers all allow us to be a lot more relevant and practical. And the thing is, when I tell this to, to you know, people at universities, sometimes they go, oh my gosh, this is so terrible because now you're skipping all the important foundations that we teach. Universities are very proud of the fact that they teach the mathematical and theoretical foundations that underpin software engineering. But here's the, here's the thing. When you go to companies and you say, hey, what should we teach? They tell us that the theoretical and the mathematical foundations are really important. And so because we listen to industry, we do it too. So there are aspects of what universities do that we think are very good and aspects of what universities do that we think could be improved. And we're not just trying to be anti-university just to make a statement or look different or be different. We're trying to build our own university, but built on a set of morals and foundations that is much more that are much more industry focused and and take a much more practical point of view while understanding that some of the things that universities currently do should be preserved. And so what you find in our two-year program is a mix of topics that are covered at universities and ones that you could not find at any university. And I think that combination is, is really, really powerful. Because we don't have a research department and because we don't have, um, you know, a desire to compete for research grants or professors with fancy PhDs, um, we also feel great pain every time there is an educational experience at make school that is not good. And I can tell you, we've educated, you know, almost a thousand students in our programs across the years. Of course, we've had moments where we had a bad instructor or a lecture that wasn't as good as it could have been or an error in some of our curriculum. You know, we're human. But unlike most universities, we care. If someone is not doing a good job as an instructor, we fire them. In America, most professors teaching an undergrad who are, are actual professors are guaranteed jobs for life. They literally cannot be fired. So um, our, our relentless focus on improving and maintaining a super, super high quality of instruction for students means that it's, 
it's not hard to do better because universities don't actually focus on that that much in the United States. The exception being what we call, you know, liberal arts colleges, um, universities that typically don't have research departments where the sole focus is on the undergraduate experience. And we have a very, very high respect for some of those institutions because even though they don't tend to get as much international recognition in terms of prestige, they are sometimes providing some of the best educational experiences for students. And for that, we respect them tremendously. Now, as you said, there's there's absolutely no debate that the foundational aspects of computer science are very well taught in these large prestigious universities. Correct. But do you feel that computer science graduates today are somewhat unprepared for the realities of the industry when they settle in at a new job, that somehow their university hasn't taught them the practical aspects of working in the industry? Um, I certainly noticed that that that's the case. And, and there's a lot of different facets to it, some of which are not that obvious and some of which, you know, of course, of course are. A really, really good developer who's had a great computer science and software engineering education should be able to pick up a technology they don't already know. Um, so for example, we have students who go through our iOS, you know, iPhone application development courses and in the summer, and then they get a job as an Android developer. And the reason for that is that we are teaching them a much richer skill set than just specifically iPhone application development. We are teaching them, more broadly speaking, modern software engineering and product development, which happens to translate to Android just as well as it does to iOS. And even if we teach it only in the iOS context, the learnings are very transferable. So I think there's an important distinction to draw in that there are some programs out there, in particular programs that target uh, professionals that want to transition careers. Uh, typically, those programs are called boot camps. And those programs often will take people who don't have that much of a programming background and will um, will you know try to teach them one specific technology in two to three months. And that also leaves engineers prepared for only one thing, uh, which is almost the same as unprepared. So you have different kinds of problems depending on the deficiencies in the education. If you had a university education that simply did not focus on modern software engineering and product development, then even though you have the foundational knowledge and learning, for example, a particular programming language is not going to be so difficult for you, you're not going to know how to use it as part of a team. You're not going to know the protocols and procedures that are commonplace and industry standard for collaborating in a larger organization or even in a small team of five or six. You're not going to know the ways that professional engineers network amongst each other to help solve each other's problems, the online communities that people turn to to get help. You're not going to know how to document what you're doing in a way that is industry standard and allows other people to join your team and follow along. You're not going to know how to architect a program or project at a large scale because you've worked on usually things for homeworks or for tests that were in compressed periods of time and that were in artificial environments. Um, and you maybe don't, if I give you a blank screen and I say, great, start building X, or here's a problem, solve it with a piece of software, you might not know where to start. Because even though you've taken many computer science classes, you've learned many languages and you've answered many questions and solved many problems on homeworks and on tests, you literally might not know how to start from a blank page and build something from scratch. So if that's the deficiency, then absolutely, when you arrive at a company, you find yourself pretty unprepared. 
And similarly, if you didn't learn any of the theory, any of the foundation, but you only learn how to do things in one language, then you're unprepared because you don't know how to switch from one language or framework to the other. And ultimately, that's why there's demand for what we're doing. That's why students come to make school. That's why there's a student from MIT and a student from Harvard who are coming to make school next year, transferring out of those schools to attend make school instead. And it's because they see the problem, they feel the problem, and they understand that we are part of the solution. So when expanding make school overseas, have you felt pushback or stigma against the somewhat unconventional ideology of the two-year college alternative program or the uh, product academy, as you call it, uh, especially in places like Asia, where the importance of a traditional four-year college is highly emphasized or stressed? It's a very, very good question. So the, the summer programs that we offer, which can be anywhere from four to eight weeks long, um, are targeting students who are in high school or university. Right. And we don't believe it's actually possible to teach them everything they need to know to uh, be a successful software engineer in just a summer. Some students who've been lucky enough to have a really, really good foundation at university might come to us and with the extra knowledge we provide, we fill in all the missing pieces so they can get a great job. But oftentimes, it simply is not the case that in a summer you can provide a full alternative to traditional education. So our summer programs we see as a supplement, and we don't market them as uh, in any way in opposition to traditional education. And as a result, the stigma isn't really there because we're not trying to bring a program that's supposed to imply that traditional education is bad. We're just trying to bring a program that says we provide some value and some experience and some education that is not available in the traditional system without being you know, too opinionated as to where students are, are coming from. Because we get a lot of students from great universities, from poor universities, but really, really smart students from around the world in a variety of educational situations and in the summer program, we're not, we're not trying to replace college. We're not trying to replace university. So expanding the summer programs has been a really interesting exercise and challenging for other reasons, but typically has not been challenging. And you should know that like universities around the world typically are pretty friendly with each other. You know, if, if a Stanford person meets an MIT person on the street, um, you know, they like talk about ways to collaborate. They don't look at each other funny and then walk in the opposite direction. And we see ourselves as building another institution of higher education. When students come to make school, they don't drop out. They transfer in because they're going to be studying full time with us. And so in, in that sense, we see other higher education institutions as peers. And though we see that we provide different value and a different, have a different model, um, we're, not, we're not about being those people out there who talk about why college is terrible and why nobody should go and why everyone should drop out. That's not us, you know. And, and we have good relationships with a number of universities, some of whom have actually used our curriculum for their classes. Um, and we're more than happy to collaborate with higher education institutions that want to engage with us to use some of our curriculum um, to bring a little bit more of a modern and practical edge to their classrooms. So um, the, 
The stigma for the two-year program comes mostly from parents, and the two-year program is only in the United States right now. So that's that's where you know a lot of the discussion is focused. That we do get uh, certainly international students. The summer programs are less controversial because everyone has summer vacation, and this is a really world-class, wonderful way to spend a summer. And we had uh, 410 students in the program uh, graduate uh, from this this past summer. Um, including, you know, in a number of cities in Asia. So we were very, very proud of that, um, and we're very confident we're going to be able to expand that program without stigma or barriers relating to the fact that our two-year program in the United States is a bit of an alternative model. So let's talk about money and financing. Sure.、Uh, one of the drawbacks of a traditional four-year college is that of、uh, expensive tuition costs. And for the most part, this is justified. You know, universities need to fund research,、uh, but Make School does not. How does Make School generate revenue, and how is this used? So, our summer programs are、uh, operate on on a straightforward fee structure where students pay upfront. So that's a simple answer to that question. And for the summer programs, students pay and. And and that's and that's how the finance and expenses work. Now we do offer need-based scholarship to students, and that's that's why、um, almost or just over half of the students at Make School receive a partial or full scholarship on tuition, purely based on their family's financial need. We're really focused on 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 attracting and educating the most motivated and and, and strongest students around the world. And so we do admissions need-blind. Doesn't matter whether you can or can't pay. We don't want to know. Once you're admitted, we try to figure out how we can help you come. And if you cannot afford it, we give you a scholarship、uh, to the best of our ability. So that's the summer program. The two-year program, students pay nothing upfront. Make School provides the education at no initial cost, and then students will pay a percentage of their future income,、um, and they will do so for 42 months. Six of which occur between the first and second year when they do an internship, and 36 of which occur after graduation. So basically, students pay back 25% of their pre-tax income for a six-month internship, and then for three years after graduating.、Um, if students don't get a job or aren't working, they don't pay us. This gives students significant flexibility if they want to pursue additional studies, if they want to start a startup. Um, and is not restrictive and 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 punitive like student loans, where a student has to pay every month even if they did not、uh, earn any money. It aligns our incentives with our students. It really allows us to、uh, support them and help them be successful. And we think it's really exciting to be the pioneers in a model that resolves a lot of the issues in the rising cost of higher education in the United States. So. That's that's the financial model for、uh, for the two year program, and we're even adding a method where、uh, students who can't even afford housing or 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 food can get that covered from Make School as well, and then we can provide、um, uh, living assistance over the course of the program, and then have students pay back a little bit more after they graduate. And this means that students from any economic backgrounds, any ability to pay, can attend Make School. Regardless of their financial situation, as long as they meet our admissions criteria and they want to come, and that I think is a very exciting step、um, in higher education, and will allow us to attract some of the smartest students from around the world. So, in theory, this、uh, notion of delayed payment sounds like a novel idea,、uh, but for a small edu- educational company、uh, trying to get off the ground, wouldn't this lead to? Cash flow problems if you're still waiting on your current batch of students to graduate and
uh, pay their tuition? How exactly does this work? A very, very good question. So to be perfectly frank, um, there needs to be some way of getting cash now so that we can finance the operation while we wait for students to graduate and to pay. Yeah. Um, and you've, you've noticed that very correctly. Make School has three ways of sustaining ourselves and ensuring that we are financially healthy as we um, grow towards uh, a place where our students start paying back. The first way is our fee-based summer programs uh, provide Make School an infusion of revenue every summer just before the two-year program starts that allow us to finance a lot of the operations of the two-year program year on year. The second um, is Make School is a venture-backed company with a number of investors from the Silicon Valley and from Asia operating on a same similar funding structure to typical startups, meaning that we sell a percentage of our company to investors um, and as a result can use that capital to operate even if we're not immediately making profits. This is what companies as big as Uber, uh, Airbnb, and as small as you know Facebook was when they first started. This is typically how uh, companies in the Silicon Valley get their initial capital to be able to operate. So we do that too. And um, though it's not official, we haven't announced it, um, so don't tell anyone, but you can put it on your podcast. Um, you know, Make School has, has, has recently raised uh, a, a decent amount of, of additional financing, which is very good and will provide us financial stability uh, for the future and allow us, of course, to be very financially healthy until our students graduate. The third way that Make School um, can, be, uh, can get some cash flow is that there are institutions that are interested in funding Make School upfront and in exchange for being able to collect um, some percentage of the future revenue of students. So essentially participate in the risk with us and participate in the reward by giving us some money upfront and then getting some of the future income of the students. Um, we are entertaining a number of conversations around that point right now. And if we are able to strike a deal like that, it's even better for the students because that means we have even more money in the earlier days of the program to provide more instructors and more facilities um, that, that uh, we don't have to wait until they graduate to be able to access the, um, the potential returns of their future income. So those are the three methods that MakeSchool uses to stay uh, financially you know, afloat and to finance our growth. It's what allows us to expand and take risks also on new international locations. Um, and uh, we see that it's of course of high importance for an institution like ours to reach profitability sooner rather than later. Uh, but those are the ways that in the, in the short term, because the two-year program is still new, we're able to sustain ourselves and, and deal with those cash flow problems. So one of the many issues the tech industry faces today is that of diversity. Uh, specifically, women and minorities have been left behind as the Valley collectively tries to strive for technological growth and progress. How does Make School, as it is a key technical education provider, try and make their programs and their environment a safe space for women and minorities? So th this problem was obvious from my very, very first computer science class in high school. Um, there were almost no women in that class, I think just a couple. And if there's no women studying computer science in high school, then proportionally there will be fewer in college. Sure enough, when I got to college, um, you know, the, at MIT, there's actually a quite high number of women, which is really amazing. And MIT does a wonderful job at that. But across the board at many universities, you have somewhere between 10 to 20% of computer science students only who are, who are women. Um, that problem then continues into industry. And 
I, I am not the leading expert on all the reasons why the tech industry may be unfriendly in certain ways to women and minorities. I know that it's a frequent topic of discussion and many people that I, whose opinions I highly respect have, have very strong opinions about the current state of tech and the ways in which tech companies could shift their ways of hiring and their ways of operating to be a more friendly place for women and minorities. Um, that being said, again, it's not, it's not the area that I really understand and have a deep focus on. The area that I understand is observing from a primary school level all the way through university, um, the percentage of students who are of uh, minority backgrounds and, 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 who, and who are female and trying to understand how to boost that number with the hopes that if my you know, uh, colleagues in the Silicon Valley who are passionate about making the tech workplaces better places for women and minorities to work, together we can be two parts of the same puzzle and, and solve the problem by increasing the supply of minority women engineers and by increasing the desirability of tech as a, de as a destination for them. Make School has some of the highest representation of female and minority students um, across any educational institutions focusing on computer science and software engineering. Upwards of 25% of our students are female, which is uh, not as high as some of the best-in-class universities like MIT or, uh, or, or Stanford, and we're working very hard to improve that number year on year, and it has been increasing year on year. Upwards of 20% of our students are from minority backgrounds, and that is uh, basically best-in-class, except for institutions and organizations that explicitly target only female students or only minority students. We are amongst the most diverse educational institutions for computer science software engineering in the world, and we're very, very proud of that, and it's primarily achieved by a tremendous amount of outreach to communities that typically are not hearing about opportunities to study programming and are not exposed to opportunities to study programming, as well as a very comprehensive scholarship system in our summer program and the deferred tuition model in a two-year program that makes studying at Make School very accessible. So it's a big, big passion to the company and, and a big thing that we are, um, you know, we're excited to be part of the solution and we're of course only one part of it, but I think we have a lot of room to improve, but um, already today we're, we're making a big difference. And sometimes people have commented that as, as a for-profit company, Make School has certain commitments to their investors that, you know, they must grow and make certain revenue targets. And interestingly, the only hard commitment that we have, that an investor has asked us to make that we've had to like sign off on um, was a commitment to increasing the diversity of our programs. And it goes to show you that amongst the investor population, even investors that invest in for-profit companies, you have a lot of people who are mission-driven and impact-driven and who believe that a for-profit company like ours can be a vehicle for great impact in the world. And so even though they're making an investment in an entity like ours that is not a nonprofit, um, they believe and are holding us to a high standard of impact and in particular of diversification of our student body. So um, this it's, it's an excellent question and a topic that we are very, very passionate about and, and working very hard to improve on. So I have a couple friends who have a passing interest in computer science, but they're not fully ready to invest in any sort of uh, formal education, much like make schools programs. 
do you have any resources that you're willing to share where such students can uh, start learning programming for free? So um, MakeSchool has introductory programming resources available for free on our website. If you go to makeschool.com uh, and then click on the tutorials link, there's a full introductory programming course that students can follow that culminates in them building their first you know, original simple iPhone app. This is a tutorial that uh, is for students who have Macs. If students don't have Macs, the website that we recommend that we think has some of the best initial you know, resources for programmers is called teamtreehouse.com. So makeschool.com slash academy or teamtreehouse.com are the places I recommend starting. If you have access to a programming course near you, um, a, uh, at your high school or university, taking an introductory course can be a great way to start. Though, of course, do your homework because no matter how amazing the topic, a bad teacher can ruin everything. And it would be so sad if you were meant to be a programmer or meant to be a software engineer, but you never discovered it because the first programming class you took was taught by a terrible teacher. So try to find an in-person course if you can, but of course be careful that it's important to have a good teacher. Look on MakeSchool's website, look on Team Treehouse, and MakeSchool is soon gonna be launching free courses for students who um, don't have Macs, teaching other technologies. And finally, I'd say if you're free next summer, there's gonna be a MakeSchool in you know, 15 cities around the world. And so if you want to come to the United States to study, we'll have them in major metropolitan areas like the San Francisco area, Los Angeles area, New York area, and a few others. If you want to stay in Asia, we'll have them in mainland China, in Japan, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, and in Southeast Asia. And so the number of students who can testify to the fact that make school, you know, catalyze their interest in computer science and really set them on a path of learning that, you know, they feel really represents their true interests. That number of students is, is tremendous. And we're about to put up a big testimonials page with a number of video interviews and other, um, you know, uh, other information from past students. But that's, that, that's my advice. Makeschool.com, teamtreehouse.com if you want to start online. Find a local class for an after-school class, weekend class, or school, a class at your high school or university if there's a good teacher so you can try it out. And if, if not, not, not all those, the best way to start is come to a Makeschool Summer Academy. So would you mind sharing how you sort of got into programming and computer science and uh, when you sort of knew that was what you wanted to do in the future? Um, I didn't. I knew that I liked to build products and I was particularly interested in film and gaming. So I knew that I liked creating experiences for other people. I was making lots of little short films for fun. I wanted to learn how to make simple video games. And this was before the App Store existed, but had the App Store existed, I would have also been really excited to learn how to make apps because I would have had a bunch of ideas about apps as well. So in high school, the desire to create things and that creative drive, the desire to solve problems with technology and create experiences for other people with technology is what drove me to pick up computer science. And I was very lucky that my high school had amazing computer science teachers, some of the best I've ever encountered. And so from the moment I knew I had some sort of interest, I was able and very fortunately, fortunately able to you know, expand that interest with amazing guidance and amazing teachers. So I got really, really lucky in that regard, and 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 I really want every student to have that opportunity that if they think they want to go into computer science or they, they want to create an app or they want to create a game or they want to create an experience, even if they're just curious, I want to be the place that they can go 
and have that amazing educational experience that changes their life, which I was able to have in high school, but which most high schools in the world don't offer. So if you considered yourself to be a product person, then why did you choose to apply to a place like MIT, which I know provides a great technical education, but perhaps not so much a product-orientated or entrepreneurship-focused education in computer science? So MIT had a a game research lab that was developing a lot of games at the university, and that felt to me like a pretty industry-focused thing to have at a research university. A lot of the games they were making had some research purpose, but a lot of the skills that the people in that lab were practicing were the same skills that were used at real game companies. And so my goal, and I wrote it in my application to MIT, was I want to go to MIT and I want to get a job in that in that lab so I can learn how to make games. And I got to MIT and in my first semester I got a job at that lab. And that, that kept me really excited and motivated for a while. Um, but that lab eventually lost funding, unfortunately, and, and sort of downscaled its its offerings. Um, but I also took basically every class I wanted to take that was offered through that lab, in addition to working in that lab after school. And after two years, I didn't see many classes ahead of me that I hadn't taken yet that were offered through that lab. And that lab was the thing, one of the main things that was keeping me there. Um, so I went with a very, very specific purpose in mind. I was like, I want to go and be in that program and I got there and I did it. Um, and if I didn't have a specific of a drive, I might've ended up at a school that was a little bit more generalist or maybe had, uh, both a computer science department that was respected and a film department that was respected, like a school like USC or, uh, or NYU. Um, but you know, I also just, as a high school student, I didn't really know what traditional education was going to be like. And honestly, it's one of the things that's interesting about make school's two year program. You'd think we get a lot of students straight from high school and we do. But we get even more students who leave university. And the reason for that is that it's so hard to convince a high school student that make school could be better because they have a dream of what traditional university could be like. But a student who's already been in traditional university now understands how to compare make school against it and then can make an informed decision. And as a result, we get more of them coming to us than students from straight from high school. So when adapting the best parts of a college education into make school, I guess you've done quite well in terms of educational content and curriculum to make make school a viable college alternative. But a lot of people would say it's a lot harder to recreate the campus feel and uh, college social environment at make school. Do you agree? They're right. They're right. Here's the thing. It's a huge part of becoming an adult to have, you know, a formative uh experience between the ages of 18 to 22 that really allows you to socialize tremendously, make new connections, have a lot of fun. Uh, I, I won't deny that, right? That's like super important. Um, but there's ways with 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 some thought and, and strategy that you can achieve a really, really great social life and social experience with a bit of a tighter integration of the community around you. And universities tend to be a bubble. And that means that, you know, it's 18 to 22 year olds interacting with a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds and not necessarily pushing each other to be on their best behavior and being the most mature they can. So I recognize the importance of the ability to be able to throw parties and have parties and go party, the ability to meet new people and date people and fall in love and like learn about what it is to be independent and be an adult. And we are trying to recreate a lot of those opportunities at Mink School because we think that they're important. 
but we are not going to create a bubble of a campus like other schools do. We're not going to create our own complex where students never leave our walls in four years. If our students want to go to a party, they might have our we might have our own you know in our dorms, but we also would encourage our students to go to the party being hosted by the Twitter engineering team, which sounds kind of funny, but like there definitely are every week parties and meetups and events being organized by companies all around the Silicon Valley. And by having our students be able to interact with each other and of course recognizing the value of that social experience, but also enabling them to interact with student people who are older than they are and who are in industry, we think we can get, you know, have both sides of that. We can get students to have a really great social experience and also one that pushes them to become more mature and builds professional connections that allow them to succeed um, in, in their careers. So can you give us a feel for what's next for Mixel? I understand you've raised additional funding. Uh, so what's next for Mixel? What are you going to do in the future? I think that um, we're going to start getting the authorizations we need to bring in more international students, unofficial international student visas and whatnot, um, and grow, bring students from around the world to the Product Academy in the United States. And then consider also partnering with governments or institutions to bring parts or all of it to other countries. Um, but the big thing that we see is taking our summer curriculum and offering it directly to high schools or directly to universities around the world, as well as opening our own locations around the world. Right now, there's over 30 schools in the United States, high schools, that are offering computer science classes based on the same curriculum that we use in our summer programs. So when I was telling you we love collaborating with schools, our introductory curriculum is being given for free to high schools, and our more advanced curriculum has been given to, for free to universities and graduate schools. And we see a world where there are hundreds of locations, high schools, universities, and dedicated make schools, where our curriculum and way of teaching is being taught to high school students, to university students, in a variety of formats after-school courses, weekend courses, summer courses, and then one flagship location in San Francisco, a, a, basically a college, where students from all around the world are coming to study for a longer period of time. So you dropped out of MIT to start your own uh, game company. What advice do you have for people who are considering dropping out of college? So, you know, it's, it's not unheard of at MIT to have people go to, you know, take time off to work on, on ventures or take jobs and things like that. For me, the most important thing was being reasonable about it. And being reasonable meant arranging an opportunity for me to return if I wanted to. So I didn't withdraw, you know, saying, screw college, I'm, I'm, I'm gone forever. I just took a semester off and did all the paperwork I had to do to be able to return if I wanted to. And my advisor was very supportive of that. Very, very supportive of that. And we're still in very close touch. And and he's been and he's been a wonderful mentor over the years and 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 someone who um, you know provided the the encouragement I needed to make that jump at the time and who would have been there for me had I wanted to return and and I know so many people who dropped out of college and then went back and so I think it's funny that I'm the guy who didn't say he was dropping out he said he was taking a semester off and I and then I never went back but a lot of people who went going like woohoo I'm dropping out of college they ended up going back. And so my parting advice would be, you know, don't underestimate or overestimate risk. And the whole conversation about dropping out of college has led people to be completely miscalibrated. In fact, there are ways to take a semester off that are not risky and that more people should do. More people should take a gap year and try new things. It's not risky. It's not crazy. It's not scary. Do it. Less people 
should drop out of college for the sake of dropping out of college to start a stupid startup that they don't even have any motivation to do except as a reason to drop out of college. And right now there's a mismatch. You have people who are excited to drop out for no good reason because it's become trendy and people who should take some time off but do so in a, in, in a, in a non-risky way. And there are non-risky ways to do it. So think for yourself. Don't just follow the trends out there where, you know, your parents are telling you that taking time off school is so risky. Your peers are, you know, reading articles and sharing them on Facebook that make it seem so cool to drop out. Think for yourself. Don't do anything rash and stupid. And most of all, do something because you are really motivated to do it. And you can see yourself doing it and being excited about it. Don't do something because it's trendy or because you think that, um, you know, it's the thing to do. And I think that's, that's my parting advice. All right. Thanks for being on the show, Jeremy. I, I had a great time and I hope you did too. I, I really enjoyed it and you asked some awesome questions. And that was Jeremy Rossman, founder of Make School. Thank you for listening to this episode of Discourse. You can find the show notes for this episode, including relevant links and images, at our website, discoursepodcast.com slash one, or in your podcast player of choice. I use Overcast. The music for this episode was composed by the talented Oni. You can find his music at soundcloud.com slash on underscore i. You can support independent podcasts like this one by writing a review on iTunes, recommending us on Overcast, or just by posting about us on social media. 